This is the East TraumaCast. TraumaCast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program is brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of East TraumaCast. Today's podcast is the first in a new series where we're going to be covering the highlights of some of the major trauma meetings. Our first destination, Telluride, Colorado, for the 2015 meeting of the Western Trauma Association. The program chair, Dr. Peter Ree, has put together a fantastic program that includes not only top scientific presentations, but three expert debate sessions, several Western Trauma Association algorithm presentations, two name lectures in addition to the annual presidential address, and of course the infamous expert case panel session, also known as the tequila session. Unfortunately, due to the time constraints of this podcast, we're not able to cover every presentation and interview every presenter. But we do have a great sampling of the highlights of the meeting and some in-depth and behind-the-scenes interviews with many of the presenters, the senior authors, panelists, and other WTA members and officials. And on the East website, underneath the description of this podcast, you'll find supplementary materials, including a full listing of the interviews contained in this podcast, a link to the Western Trauma Association program booklet for the meeting, and a link to the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery December issue that contains the papers, presentations, and algorithms presented at this meeting. So let's jump right in with Scientific Session 1, led off by the group from the University of Michigan and Dr. Hassan Alam's lab. All right, I'm here with Dr. Hassan Alam, who's the Chief of General Surgery at the University of Michigan, and their group presented their paper here about uh, adding valproic acid to resuscitation in a TBI model. First of all, if you could briefly summarize uh, how you uh, got into the research with VPA and and kind of how you got to this point. Sure. So uh, if you uh, think about uh, trauma patients um, and mortality, trauma patients die of two major reasons. Either they bleed to death or they have head injuries. And the second thing is the time to death. So most of these deaths are fairly front-loaded, either pre-hospital or soon after getting to the hospital. Um, nowadays, we have adopted the damage control resuscitation or giving them um, blood products early. But the reality of the pre-hospital setting is that these blood products are not routinely available. It's even more challenging in more austere environments, such as a battlefield. And we were looking for a bridge to keep somebody alive, not as a definitive treatment, but to keep somebody alive long enough so they can get to higher echelons of care. The bottom line is that we all have um, the mechanisms in place to survive these injuries if we can turn them on. Uh, And that's the whole concept behind epigenetic uh, manipulation, where you can turn on the genes and subsequently, we found out the same thing happens at the protein level. So a lot of proteins that are inactivated, if we can activate them, we can activate survival pathways and inflammatory pathways, uh, cell regeneration uh, and recovery pathways. So the next question was how to do it. Uh, and we looked around and we focused on a group of drugs called histone deacetylase inhibitors. So we looked at valproic acid because you can give it intravenously. Uh, it's generic. Uh, it's dirt cheap. 
Uh, it got clinically approved uh, by the FDA for 1978, so we know a lot about it. But the drug works through multiple mechanisms. So the next question is, well, it increases acetylation, but would it be uh, effective in decreasing the, uh, the brain lesion size? So we did this uh, survival study. Um, a traumatic brain injury was created. Animals were resuscitated either with normal saline uh, or normal saline with addition of valproic acid. Uh, and then we uh, looked at MRIs at multiple time points, looked at cognitive um, deficit, neurological impairment, and recovery. And sure enough, that lower dose, which was much better tolerated from a hemodynamic standpoint, uh, still had a fairly significant uh, improvement in the size of the brain lesion, the extent of neurological impairment, and the speed of recovery. So is the important thing with valproic acid effect uh, that you're seeing systemic effect, or is it local tissue effect, or is it both? I think it's a local tissue effect. So uh, in any study that we've done, and we've done now a number of studies, it does not resuscitate better. So it's not that the drug is a resuscitative agent that it would um, improve tissue perfusion or oxygenation. So the animal is in as much shock as the other animals that were treated with, with the vehicle agents. But at the cellular level, all the pro-survival pathways are upregulated. So despite the animal being in shock and tissue perfusion being bad um, and acidosis being uh, non-reversed, um, the cells survive and the body survives um, for, for a number of hours. So, so what were the main findings from the study you presented here at the meeting? So they, to summarize it, I mean, the findings are um, this, this is a large animal model of a combined 40% uh, blood loss and fairly significant traumatic brain injury. We looked at uh, neurological impairment as one endpoint. Then we looked at the rate of recovery from that impairment as a second endpoint. And the third thing was we measured the size of the brain lesion on serial um, MRIs. And what we found was that if we give um, 150 milligram of valproic acid, along with the conventional normal saline resuscitation an hour after the injury, brain lesion size is a smaller on MRI, that the um, neurological impairment the day after injury is much less, and the rate of recovery uh, is much faster. And so tell us a little bit about the human study. Then the two highest doses that are tolerated well in these healthy human volunteers will be then translated and taken over and tested in trauma patients. The volume of distribution is different. Um, so the drugs, that the, the dose of drug that works in uh, healthy volunteers may or may not work equally well in trauma patients. So that will be the part two of the still phase one trial. Again, looking at efficacy, sorry, uh, safety. As marker of efficacy, what we're looking at is we're looking at uh, what happens to the circulating cell proteome, whether the, the uh, the pro-survival pathways are activated or not. Um, but, you know, to be honest, this is a phase one trial, and it's a safety-focused trial. All right. We want to thank you for uh, sharing your uh, interesting line of research, and we really look forward to future developments and especially the human data. Thank you very Fantastic. much. Fantastic. Thank you very much. In this morning's session, we heard two great presentations out of the Denver Health University of Colorado system, both of them looking at aspects of coagulation, resuscitation, and fibrinolysis. We have the two presenters here uh, to discuss their papers. Hi, I'm Michael Chapman. I'm a uh, research fellow at uh, University of Colorado. I'm Hunter Moore. I'm also a research fellow at the University of Colorado. Okay, and we'll start with you, Mike. You uh, presented a paper called The Death Diamond, Rapid Tag Identifies Lethal Hyperfibrinolysis. Uh, can you just tell us what was the, what was the impetus behind the study or your, your hypothesis that drove you to look at this? So for several years, we've been looking at 
hyperfibrinolytic uh, patients with trauma-induced coagulopathy. And there has been a lot of questions about when we should treat, what we should treat with, what are our thresholds for treating. And most of this is driven off of, in terms of diagnosis, is driven off of bronchoblastography, of course. And the commonly used metric is the LY30, the lysis 30 minutes after our maximum clot strength or maximum amplitude. We've noticed for a long time that there are qualitative aspects to the peg tracing that go beyond the amount of information that this number can communicate. The peg tracing takes on different shapes, and certain shapes seem to be associated with poorer outcomes than others. So tell us about how you did your study. Uh, what was your population you studied and your methods? We have an observational study that's ongoing with all trauma activations that come to our center. We collect blood on them, the field, ED arrival, very early metrics of coagulopathy are related to biochemical markers that we're studying as well as outcomes. And in this case, with you know, this is a retrospective study, but we've been getting tags on people for a long time. So we did a retrospective study of the entire um, the entire population who was admitted to Denver Health for trauma who at least either had one of these following things, either died or went to the ICU, um, had a transfusion of at least one unit of blood products. So basically somebody who was bleeding to some extent and serious enough injury that they either died or went to the unit. And wanted to see if there was a unique peg pattern that only showed up in those that died. So you, d you describe this as the death diamond. Um, and what do you think this pattern represents? What I think this pattern represents is it's physiologically, this is the last ditch Hail Mary pass to keep your microvasculature open. You should begin elaborating TPA. And, um, and the inhibitors of fibrinolysis are overwhelmed by the outpouring of TPA from the microvasculature that is struggling to keep the microvasculature open in a situation with low flow, low pressure. Sure. So I have a patient, and their tag looks like this death diamond. They're clotting and breaking it down right away. Is there anything I can do to help salvage that patient, or is that just a pattern of dying? Well, as my colleague Dr. Moore presented in his paper, we are beginning to see evidence that early aggressive resuscitation with plasma is potentially beneficial in this type of patient. Okay. Well, that's a perfect lead-in to your colleague. Uh, this is Dr. Hunter Moore, who presented a fascinating paper called Plasma First Resuscitation Attenuates Hyperfibrinolysis Induced by Hemorrhagic Shock. Uh, so thanks a lot for joining us, Hunter. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what was the impetus behind your study? Last year, the Western Charlotte presented sort of a spectrum of fibrinolysis, looking at a range where you had somewhere on the extremes high fibrinolysis or hyperfibrinolysis. On the low end, shutdown fibrinolysis, you had elevated mortality. And in between the two, you had sort of a survival benefit. And we know that derangement of either thrombin generation or hyperfibrinolysis has been classically been described as what drives trauma-induced coagulopathy. And as we saw that the hyperfibrinolytic patients had the highest mortality, we wanted to find what caused hyperfibrinolysis, and it, it really hasn't been defined yet. And what we saw in our paper from last year was that a low systolic blood pressure on arrival to the hospital correlated with the hyperfibrinolytic phenotype, and everything else, looking at those clinical variables, didn't predict the ISS, face deficit, lactate, injury patterns, blood penetrating, it didn't matter. So something about a low systolic blood pressure correlated to it. And so we followed this up with a rat study, which we um, put rats into either a group of tissue injury or hemorrhagic shock. And we saw that the hemorrhagic shock animals produce a significant amount of TPA. And this was followed up with a clinical study that showed that human patients with a hyperfibrinolytic phenotype had 
high levels of free PPA. So we built this model trying to generate a hyperfibromic rat model in which we put these rats into a profound level of shock. And then once we were able to obtain that, which took us almost half a year to develop this model, we could start playing around with resuscitation strategies. And with a combat trial that's going on in Denver right now, randomization to normal saline versus plasma, we said, oh, great, now we have this hyperfibromic phenotype, let's put it in the animal and see what other benefits we get. Because we didn't hypothesize that plasma would have any effect on hyperfibromized folks designing this trial. So tell us about the results of your study and the main findings. So the main findings from the study was that, again, when we did this model, we showed that LY30 and PPA went up when you put these animals in profound shock. And those animals that were resuscitated with normal saline um, had an exacerbation of their LY30. It went up to, um, I believe the meaning was almost 22% or something like that. So profound hyperfibrolysis and a 50% mortality rate. Whereas those with the plasma resuscitation, 100% of them survived and their LY30 dropped down from roughly like 7 to about 3. So it, we saw that, L, that hyperfibrolysis was attenuated, but it wasn't TPA that changed. Instead of TPA going up in the normal saline group and down in the plasma group, it stayed relatively level between the two groups. So what we think is going on is that plasma is when you resuscitate with plasma, you sort of buffer the TPA fibrolytic system. You're putting back stuff that inhibits and prevents this exacerbation of the lethal hyperfibromic phenotype, which Mike was talking about earlier. And so you mentioned the combat trial. Can you briefly uh, just tell us about that? And uh, that sounds like it's going to be pretty exciting results. Right. So the combat trial, we can't talk about the results right now because we have an interim analysis. Now, just what you're doing in the but, trial. But in the trial, it's uh, patients um, are resuscitated with either genius of pressurizing plasma or um, standard of care with saline. And uh, they meet rock criteria in the field, and when they come in, they finish getting their plasma, and they, they continue normal um, resuscitation. So they're, they're getting the plasma or saline started in the field, not in the ED. Right. These patients get plasma first thing, no saline. Okay. Well, we're looking forward to some more great work from both of you, and thanks a lot for talking to us. Thank you. All right. I'm here with Dr. Dan Nelson from Madigan Army Medical Center, who presented in the first session this morning. Uh, he presented his work looking at the relative roles of the glucocorticoid versus mineralocorticoid axes in an animal model of traumatic shock. Uh, so, Dan, why don't you first tell us what was the uh, impetus or background behind performing this project? Well, historically, there's been a large body of research looking at relative adrenal insufficiency in both critical care and uh, following traumatic shock. And the majority of this literature has focused on the glucocorticoid axis and cortisol. There's been recent evidence in humans that the mineral corticoid axis um, plays a, a, an additional critical role and therefore we wanted to look at both axes uh, determine if one uh, potentially has a greater impact on um, uh, following traumatic uh, hemorrhage, hemorrhage and shock. Uh, so tell us about how you looked at that and what your main results were. Well, basically, we used a hemorrhage and ischemia reperfusion model uh, using large animals. Uh, we used swine in this case. We basically uh, performed a large volume hemorrhage followed by a 50-minute period of ischemia and then measured uh, cortisol, aldosterone, and plasma renin activity uh, at uh, three time points during that um, uh, portion of the experiment. Uh, based on our analysis, uh, we showed that uh, hemorrhage and ischemia 
uh, only resulted in a, a moderate, um, a modest impact on the glucocorticoid access. Whereas in the uh, mineral, uh, or excuse me, uh, with aldosterone, we did see an expected rise in aldosterone after hemorrhage, uh, but then a profound decrease uh, following reperfusion and resuscitation, indicating uh, significant mineral corticoid deficiency. Also, we saw uh, extreme hyperrenanism uh, following reperfusion and resuscitation. Uh, so we were seeing basically elevated renin with paradoxically low aldosterone levels. So what you're saying is for, for all this time where we focused on cortisol, we may have been chasing the wrong adrenal hormone in critically ill or injured patients. Yeah, it's very possible. So what are the implications for this research? Does this represent anything we could potentially treat or use clinically? Absolutely. Um, both, both the low aldosterone as well as the hyperrenism uh, are potential sources for not only uh, diagnosing and better characterizing acute adrenal insufficiency following traumatic shock, but also uh, offer potential therapeutic uh, options. So that's pretty exciting results. Uh, where do you think this research is heading next? Well, I think the next big step is to trial different therapeutic options or potentially block um, uh, you know, things like uh, the hyperrenanism. So Dan, those are exciting results. Uh, where do you plan to go next with this research? Well, this is definitely preliminary data, and I think additional research needs to be done to further characterize uh, you know, the overall impact of these, of these axes. But um, one potential step is to look at, you know, the effects of blocking hyperrenanism or supplementing with aldosterone. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. I'm here with Eric Olson, uh, who's representing the UC San Diego, uh, and they presented an excellent study, which was a prospective randomized trial uh, looking at uh, subcutaneous heparin versus Lovenox for DBT and VTE prophylaxis. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dr. Martin. So uh, can you just first explain the reason for this study? Uh, why did we need a, a randomized study looking at this? Yeah, so the reason behind this was twofold. Uh, first was just uh, whether or not using the appropriate dosing of heparin, which we consider every eight hours, 5,000 units, which uh, early literature supported being superior in VTE protection versus the 12-hour, if that is uh, safe to use compared to what people have recommended a long time uh, as being Lovenox, 30 milligrams twice daily. Sure. So tell me about your study design uh, to <clears throat> accomplish that goal. Yeah. So this was a randomized prospective uh, trial. Um, the uh, com uh, computerized block randomization. Um, and basically, any patients uh, that met uh, either significant or highest risk uh, for VTE by ACCP guidelines uh, were eligible for randomization at our, at our study. Uh, obviously, that had to be 18 years or older. And then we had uh, just common exclusion factors, uh, things like that make Lovenox uh, possibly inappropriate, such as weight, body mass index greater than 40, renal insufficiency, cramming of 1.3 we used, and then other factors such as pregnancy or prisoners, delayed transfers were things that excluded people. So we tried to uh, capture as much of the trauma population as possible. And so the study was all trauma patients, is that correct? Correct. All trauma patients. We didn't have any acute care, general surgery, or any other patients. They were uh, just trauma. Okay, great. So what did you find? So we found, uh, and in our entire intention to treat, 
we found that the uh, absolute difference in BTE rates was only 3%. However, when we focused on only the patients that truly got a duplex ultrasound before they were discharged, uh, which was a little over 100 patients in each group, the absolute difference in BTE risk uh, between the two patients was 6.5%, with 6.5% more uh, <coughs> DBT events in the heparin group. But that being lower than our non-inferiority uh, margin, uh, it appears that it, heparin is non-inferior to Lovenox for these patients in our population. So what would you recommend based on this study? So I think this gives good support that people can have confidence in using heparin uh, compared to Lovenox, and they're not going to put their patients at risk uh, for uh, VTE and that they get the benefit of having the potential cost savings. Because our confidence uh, intervals did uh, go above that 10% margin that we picked, we can't conclusively say that we shouldn't use Lovenox at all anymore or that it might be a potential uh, advantage for that in certain populations. And so I think the future directions is that we really need to focus on uh, the more severely injured patients or maybe just you know lower extremity pelvic fracture patients that we know are at higher risk and just focus on those for where the direction of, of where, really what the best medication is in the future. Sure, and just to clarify, what you're recommending based on your study is TID dosing of heparin versus BID, is that correct? Most definitely, that if you're going to use heparin, it has to be the TID dosing to get the maximal benefit of prophylaxis. So is there any difference in bleeding events between the groups? So actually, uh, we looked at both major and uh, minor bleeding, and there was no clinically significant difference. There was only a difference of one or two patients of major bleeding in the Lovenox group compared to the heparin. Nothing was statistically significant. Okay, great. Well, congratulations on, on doing one of the rare birds in the literature of prospective randomized trial, and thanks for sharing your results. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. All right, I'm here with Rick Miller from Vanderbilt University and the new chair of the program committee for Western Trauma Association. Uh, we heard a great presentation that talked about some innovative uh, methods to take care of a challenging problem of traumatic flank hernias. So thanks a lot for speaking with us, Rick. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. So uh, why don't you tell us about the, uh, the patient population from your series and, and the, the main anatomic challenges that you have to deal with? Well, as you know, um, these uh, flank hernias are very challenging operatively. Uh, the most common cause for these flank hernias uh, are traumatic after motor vehicle collisions, usually from the seatbelt and a, a big deceleration injury. But we also see <clears throat> these uh, hernias after nephrectomies, after flank incisions, even after um, some um, posterior exposures, retroperitoneal exposures for, for the spine, where there's uh, denervation of the uh, oblique and transverse abdominus muscles. So why can't you just repair it like a standard hernia and put a, just cover the defect with a piece of mesh? Well, the big problem, obviously, is that there's no uh, purchase inferiorly because the muscle's been pulled off the bone. And so there's really no fascia to suture with. So we have to think of innovative ways to reconstruct that defect in the pelvis. And so, uh, so what's the technique you and your colleagues have come up with? Probably about, uh, I would say about seven or eight years ago, one of my orthopedic trauma surgeons and I came up with the idea that we could potentially uh, anchor 
uh, a piece of synthetic mesh to the iliac crest with the uh, anchoring sutures that the orthopedic surgeons use frequently for, for other procedures related to uh, 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 ligament or bone uh, uh, reconstruction. So what we're basically doing is denuding the iliac crest and then placing these anchoring sutures through the periosteum uh, into good cancellous bone. Uh, we use uh, the Mitex anchoring suture, which has two large Ethibon sutures on it. You can then place a synthetic mesh to uh, act as a sling and uh, reconstruct this uh, very challenging hernia uh, in which patients have a lot of problems with uh, pain, uh, constipation, uh, and it's the colon that's off, often protruding. It's called the Mitex anchoring suture, and what the orthopedic surgeon does is actually drill into the cancellous bone, and then we actually um, hammer the anchoring suture into the bone, which is then attached to the Ethibon sutures that we then attach the synthetic mesh and the muscle to. Uh, and then what we do uh, medially uh, is actually a modified reef stopa repair where we uh, divide the posterior rectus sheath and place transabdominal sutures in the retrorectus space to purchase a wide-based synthetic mesh superiorly to the obliques and laterally to the transversalis or even the psoas muscle so that you've got this wide area of dissipation of all of that hydrostatic pressure when you stand up. So how far out from the initial trauma should we be taking these patients to fix their hernias? Should we take them pretty quickly or should we wait a while? I, I think that, that's a, a really great question. And, 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 and in my personal opinion, although I don't have great data, uh, these are the type of hernias that you really don't want to fix early. Um, they're protein calorie malnourished. There's a lot of hematoma. And interestingly, even some of the patients that have developed traumatic hernias are not symptomatic and they don't have a tremendous amount a bulging, and they fibrose their scar and do okay. Um, but this is a, a, a hernia that you want to wait uh, at least six or eight months until they're healed from all their other major trauma. And these are usually people that have pretty significant trauma. And then electively do this uh, several months later, and, and I, I believe it's a better outcome. And so uh, should we be doing these repairs on our own, or should we always involve our, an orthopedic colleague when it comes to the bone work? <clears throat> we have a very collegial relationship. Uh, they're the ones that are drilling into bones every day. Um, I personally think that this is a great case to do combined. There are people uh, that do it on their own. Um, the biggest problem is if those anchoring sutures are not in the proper position, they can pop out several months later. And, and I've read of reports of people doing that on their own. And so that's my personal recommendation, uh, but you obviously have to use your own best judgment. And so how many patients have you uh, done these on, and how, what's the longest follow-up you have? So we've, we've done eight patients. Um, uh, we have six excellent outcomes. Uh, uh, the one MRSA infection uh, is actually healed in. Uh, that's the seventh, and we've had that, uh, that one other recurrence, uh, 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 which occurred well after a year. But the majority now, uh, we have fallen, uh, fallen up past two years. The longest is, uh, is over five years out. And if you have a good repair after a couple of years, the chance that you're going to have a long-term outcome is really good. But like anything, Matt, um, you know, like any hernia, hernias beget hernias, and, and, and this is just uh, perfect timing for, for uh, several institutions that are interested in this to combine uh, our data and follow these patients long term. All right. Well, we congratulate you on coming up with an innovative approach to a real challenging problem, and we look forward to hearing 
uh, some more results and hopefully some larger series. Well, thank you very much, Matt. Right. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Larry. The meeting this year also featured three expert debates. The topic for the first debate, tourniquets and civilian trauma. The opponents, Dr. Kenji Anaba arguing four tourniquets and Dr. Carlos Brown arguing the composition. First up is Dr. Carlos Brown arguing that tourniquets are unnecessary in civilian trauma environments. We control this hemorrhage by fracture management, direct wound management, and yes, at times, tourniquets. Fracture management is easy. You don't need a tourniquet to reduce and splint fractures. What about direct wound management? These are simple maneuvers that stop bleeding. Direct pressure, a simple pressure dressing, packing the wound with or without a topical anesthetic. The reality is that direct wound management stops the vast majority of bleeding in every single scenario. Every scenario. Direct pressure or pressure dressing or packing stops bleeding in the vast majority of patients. So what about tourniquets? When tourniquets, tourniquets come into play? Well, who really needs a tourniquet? Kenji mentioned all the military literature, and I absolutely agree in the military we need tourniquets to save lives and stop bleeding from the extremity. Care to fire, you're being shot at. Tactical field care, you were just shot at a few minutes ago. Tactical evaluation care, evacuation care, you might be shot at while you're evacuating casually. This is a completely different environment. This is a combat environment. You need tourniquets in this setting. And not everything the military does works in civilian practice. Now look at a non-pneumatic tourniquet or, tourniquet or a windless tourniquet. This pressure was up to four, from 400 to 700 millimeters of mercury. You have no idea how much pressure you're putting on that extremity on that tissue, on those nerves, on those blood vessels. No idea. And so the, the lack of control when putting on non-pneumatic tourniquets or windless tourniquets is the lack of control is going to be harmful to that patient. And we talked to you. So on the con side, civilian, uh, tourniquets and civilian practice are not necessary. We're using the wrong tourniquets. We're using pneumatic tourniquets. There are significant complications associated with tourniquet use, especially applied apply to a patient that does not need a tourniquet in the first place, and there is zero literature supporting their use. And in his response in defense of tourniquets, Dr. Kenji Anaba emphasizes the ease, efficacy, and ubiquity of these devices in both military and civilian settings. But I think it's still very important because we have patients that are coming with uncontrolled vascular injury and extensive soft tissue injury, and there are times when we simply cannot maintain compression. If you look at the civilian data, there's a lot of authors uh, on this paper that are in the crack today. This is the Houston study. Both centers were looked at learn to look at all civilian extremity injuries that resulted in death, CPR, emergency department throat problems, so the sickest of sick, isolated extremity injuries. Now, all of these patients ultimately died, you can see that 57% of them had bleeding from a site that would have been amenable to tourniquet control. So I think the first thing that I would like to tell Carlos is that today, in 2015, there are still patients that get injured and they're dying from bleeding that could have been stopped by a tourniquet. There are situations in which tourniquets will not work. So if you have junctional bleeding, you can't get a tourniquet above this. So I will give you that in a case like this, a tourniquet will not work. I'm also going to give you the tourniquets are not 100% and that there is probably a difference in the type of tourniquet that you use. And so I think the big message from this paper, and I think from practical usage, is that sometimes one tourniquet is sufficient, like in this case. Sometimes, like with this fellow, you really need to have tourniquet, two tourniquets placed. And in some cases, you may need three or more. You really need to apply tourniquets until that bleeding is stopped. And if the science behind Kenji's arguments wasn't enough, 
He closed out his presentation with a video of his five-year-old son applying a tourniquet, followed by a message from his son to Dr. Brown. And they really have the potential, even in the civilian sector, to save lives. There's a very low complication burden associated with this, and really they're cheap and they're ubiquitous. They are widely available. They're super easy to use. They can be applied to the upper or the lower extremity. And there's very little downside unless they're not used when they really should have been. So I'm here with Dr. Allenson Bernson from the UC uh, San Diego, who presented today. Uh, her presentation titled A New Kid on the Block, Outcomes with Case Centra, One Year After Approval. Uh, so, Allison, why don't you tell us a little bit about what was the uh, inspiration for doing this study? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Case Centra is a drug that was only approved in April of 2013 in the U.S. Um, it's a four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate that's used to reverse uh, primarily warfarin-induced coagulopathy, but may have some other potential uses, particularly with the uh, factor 10A inhibitors, which we're seeing more and more of. Um, so we started using it in our trauma center in San Diego in July of 2013. And given that it was new, we really felt that it was something that should be researched to see what our outcomes were, as well as to see if we were having any complications. You know, given that it's an anti-bleeding drug, we always worry that we're going to cause extra thrombosis and, and cause DVTs and PEs in our patients. Okay. And so you say it's a four-factor PCC. Mm -hmm. are, are there other PCCs? There are. Um, the, what we used to have in the U.S. before were three-factor PCCs. These contained mostly factors 2, 9, and 10, and just a tiny bit of factor 7. Okay, great. And so who was your patient population you looked at? So we looked at all of our trauma patients who received Kcentra who had coagulopathy either from warfarin, uh, the factor 10A inhibitors, and we included a couple of cirrhotics. Um, the data that it would be efficacious in cirrhotics is not great. These are unactivated clotting factors and require the liver to activate them. But as we all know, when we get cirrhotics that are bleeding, we tend to try anything. So we thought we would include them just to see how our outcomes were. Okay, and so what were the main outcome measures you were looking at? We were mostly looking uh, for the warfarin and cirrhotic patients at how well we re reversed their INR. That obviously doesn't apply for rivaroxaban patients since the INR is not an accurate measure of anticoagulation in those patients. We did look at TEG reversals where we had TEGs available, which was not everybody. And then we looked, um, as we said, at complications. Okay, and, and what did you find with the use of K-Centra in those patients? Uh, so what we found was mostly what we expected from the European data in that it works really well for patients that are on warfarin. Um, we had patients that came in with INRs anywhere from a normal anticoagulation range 2 to 3 all the way up to patients with INRs of 10, 12, 13. And the case center really reversed those patients very, very well. For the cirrhotic patients, we found, as we expected, it didn't work all that well because it was only two patients. It's not great statistical info, um, but didn't have great clinical outcomes. The rivaroxaban patients are a little bit of a mixed bag. We had some patients where it seemed to help and some patients where it didn't, so that's something I really think needs further research and probably a multi-center trial because these patients are still fairly rare. Okay, so Coumadin's a long-acting drug, so mm -hmm. I give someone K-Centra, and how long can I count on it lasting, and do I need to be redosing them? So case entry tends to start wearing off at about 24 to 48 hours. The different factors have different half-lives, but in our study we would start to see a bump around 24 hours where their INR would start trending back up if they didn't get vitamin K. Okay, and so why not just give these patients FFP? 
So the big concerns with FFP um, are a couple different things. Obviously, it works. It's been the standard of care for years, but it takes a lot longer. Kcentra can reverse a patient in 15 to 30 minutes in prior studies. Um, FFP can take hours, depending on how much you have to give. We sometimes have to give huge volumes of FFP, multiple units, um, to get patients under control, which can cause volume overload, especially in elderly patients that have CHF or renal failure. Um, FFP has higher risks of transfusion-associated lung injury or infections. Okay, so do you have any uh, further studies or next steps planned from this data? Um, one thing we'd like to do is compare the four-factor K-Centra back to our Profile 9, since that's what we had used previously. We think that the four factors work better. That's been the experience in other centers, but we'd like to look at that for ourselves. Um, and again, I think the 10A inhibitors are where we really need the most info because we don't have any other treatments for these patients, and we need to find something that works. I'm here with Rachel Russo from the University of California, Davis. Uh, she presented her study today on a pilot study of chest tube versus pigtail catheter drainage of acute hemothorax in swine. Uh, this has been a topic of great interest at Western Trauma, uh, although very little data available. Um, so, Rachel, why don't you tell us a little bit about what prompted your study? Certainly. Um, so, as you had pointed out, there's very little data but a lot of interest uh, in this topic. Primarily, what we were looking at um, was the trend in surgery to go towards more minimally invasive topics. These interventions, particularly using pigtail catheters for traumatic pneumothorax, have been very successful, so much so that many centers are starting to use them instead of chest tubes primarily. Um, for traumatic hemothorax, however, there's much less data. And so when we were asking around to other trauma surgeons why the reluctance, the response was usually out of concern that the smaller diameter catheter would lead to incomplete blood drainage, or slower blood drainage. Now, what was your suspicion before actually doing the study? Did you suspect the pigtail would be equivalent, or did you suspect, as I'm sure many people would, that it would be in inferior to a regular chest tube? Well, given that there was some data that already existed showing that over time they would be equivalent, we expected that given enough time that the drainage would eventually equilibrate, but we thought that that was going to take a very long time uh, what we were very surprised to find was that it took three minutes. Three minutes for? For the volume of blood drained from the pigtail catheter to equal the volume of blood drained by the chest tube. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your model and how you performed the study? Sure. So the model was a pre-existing model uh, for porcine hemothorax. We basically took blood from the femoral arteries and instilled it into catheters that had been previously placed into the pleural space. We drained out one side through a chest tube and through the other side through the 14 French pigtail catheter and then looked at the volume of blood drainage and the rate of flow of that blood um, over the duration of the study, which was 40 minutes. Okay, and what did you find? Interestingly, like we had discussed, uh, both tubes had variable performance. So, for example, the chest tube drained 90% of the blood that had been instilled into the chest immediately upon unclamping, but did so only in two out of the six pigs. So when you take the performance of the chest tube overall, it didn't do that well. Um, the pigtail catheter, on average, did equivalent to the chest tube, but also looking at it, it drained 90% of the blood that had been instilled into the chest within the first three minutes after unclamping, again in only two out of six pigs. So when I was a resident, if you didn't place a 36 chest tube and posteriorly to the apex, you were going to hear about it at morning report the next day. And what was interesting is you guys also looked at tube positioning. So uh, did tube position have any effect 
uh, in addition to the tube size. No, we were looking for a reason for this variable performance that we were seeing, knowing that it was experienced surgeons that were placing these tubes in the same way that we would in any patient. And the tube variability was impressive. Um, half the time it was anterior to the lung, half the time it was posterior to the lung, and that was true both for the pigtail catheter and for the chest tube. But in no case did it seem to affect the performance. And what do you have planned? Are any follow-up studies planned, or are we ready to just go to pigtails for humans? Well, I think the uh, next study that we would consider in a pig model would be looking at intervening on the tubes when the performance was less than what was desired. Um, for example, while the pigtail catheter had no statistically different retained volume of hemothorax in the chest tube, there were two instances when the pigtail catheter was clotted and the retained blood in the chest was over 400 milliliters, uh, which would require a secondary drainage procedure. But because we did not manipulate the tubes, we didn't clear the clot. Okay, well, that's fantastic work, and we love hearing it at the meeting. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm here with uh, two pediatric surgeons and leaders in both the trauma and pediatric uh, surgery community, uh, with Dennis Bensard, who's from University of Colorado, and Rich Falcone, who's from Cincinnati Children's. Uh, they had two really great presentations at the meeting this year. Uh, we'll start with the first one uh, with you, Dennis. Uh, you guys presented an interesting study looking at the uh, value and utility of following serial hemoglobin measurements in uh, pediatric trauma patients with solid organ injury, something I think we do pretty reflexively especially in the adult population. So what was the reason behind uh, even looking at this? When you take into account, uh, as we as pediatric surgeons are interested in, as everyone should be, family-centered care, blood draws are painful for children. They're, they're stressful for families. So we are hypothesized that it would be unnecessary and that if a patient truly needed blood, it would be manifested in... Uh, clinical signs that then might trigger a measurement or uh, physical examination, which has largely been a lost art, uh, repeat fast, etc. So what was the design of your study? Was this a prospective, retrospective? Well, it was a retrospective study over four years, and uh, it, we looked at a, over a four-year period to identify children with uh, solid organ injury, liver, or spleen. We then uh, uh, looked at their course, looked at what was the, and we defined the need for an intervention as laparotomy or uh, blood transfusion or angioembolization. What we found, and it was very consistent, that in a, in, um, a level two center, which the adult surgeons are the first line, uh, the laparotomy rate uh, in both centers combined is less than uh, uh, 3%, it was actually 2.5%. So in terms of our first intervention, um, very few of those children required laparotomy, and interestingly, they declared themselves within four hours. So then when we looked at our second intervention, we saw that about 15% or 15 to 17% of additional patients required that second intervention of blood transfusion. But as you can anticipate, the majority of those blood transfusions, nearly two-thirds of them, were, again, early because these were the patients who were initially thought to be responders, then continued to be persistently hypotensive, and then hemoglobin was checked and they were transfused blood. And so in these guidelines, we have these variable lengths 
of stays that we've tended to correlate with injury grade. And then a component of that is, oh, okay, well then let's have serial hemoglobin monitoring. And so what we found is that that other third of patients, which actually was only, um, I think, of 15 patients, um, who subsequently got a delayed blood transfusion, um, again, the majority of those patients were transfused on the basis of a persistently elevated heart rate. And so when then we look at the number of blood draws these kids are receiving, um, for those patients that had an intervention, it was 20 blood draws. So if we apply that across the board, we see that 95% of children with solid organ injury um, are not going to need serial blood draws. The, probably the safest practice would be to say, okay, we're going to have a baseline hemoglobin when you're admitted. We're going to follow you for signs of change clinically, good old-fashioned medicine, if you need confirmatory study, then a hemoglobin, but not scheduled hemoglobin. Now, now, what do you say to the people who would reply with the standard teaching that, that's everywhere, including ATLS, that kids, you can't tell that they're bleeding, they'll look normal until they'll fall off a cliff at the very end? I think when you look at those studies, and I think um, we know in kids there are a number of reasons that they may have tachycardia or being upset. Now, maybe they didn't get their ice cream for uh, dinner or something. But the point is, is that for most of us who take care of children, um, and I think the same for people who see children infrequently, um, the clinical signs are there. So what is your current practice for these kids? Are you, are you not checking any follow-up hemoglobins well, if there's no clinical indicator? Well, my current practice in the facility that I work primarily in is, is that, yes, we're largely abandoning scheduled hemoglobins. We obtain all these tests. Percentage of them are, are abnormal, but very few are acted upon. And I think that's where we're really, we're, we're really headed to. And I think it, it adds unnecessary cost. It doesn't provide any additional information. And, and even as our data shows, and sometimes promote an unnecessary intervention because there were children who were transfused blood that should not have been transfused blood, and we all are aware of the adverse effects of uh, uh, blood transfusion. Well, thanks again for speaking with us, Dennis. We also were able to speak at length with Dr. Rich Falcone, who gave a presentation on a new collaborative program he's established to partner with adult trauma centers to improve their pediatric care and help them gain certification as a pediatric trauma center. Uh, this conversation was so interesting and in-depth that we decided to make it an individual podcast of its own. You can listen to that on the East TraumaCast website as podcast number 39, titled The Pediatric Trauma Transformation Collaborative. In this session, we heard a great presentation out of Austin that looked at the impact of changing marijuana laws on driving and auto-related fatalities. I'm here with the senior author from that paper uh, to discuss some of the main findings and issues. Hi, I'm Jason Adelot. I'm a trauma surgeon in uh, Dell Medical School in Austin. And uh, what uh, got us thinking about this problem was, actually, we're from Texas, and we don't really have a dog in the legalized marijuana fight. Texas will be likely the last state to ever do that. But what we do have is a giant corridor of marijuana illegality floating up from Mexico. And some of us have really close connections to Mexico. 
We just wanted to see, well, well, these two states that legalized their marijuana, well, one of the main arguments against it was that people were going to uh, be more drugged on the highway and the drug driver was going to be a huge public health concern in those states. So what were the two states that you looked at? <clears throat> so the two states at the time were um, Colorado and Washington. They legalized marijuana in 2012, November, and uh, we started looking at this in the summer of 2014 and were able to actually do an open records request to those two states for the year of 2013 fully to capture one whole year's worth of legalized marijuana drug driving data. I'm kind of holding my hands up in quotes. And so, so what were the metrics you looked at in your study? Really, we were interested in total numbers of crashes and deaths. We also looked specifically at drug driving crashes and deaths and specifically alcohol driving crashes and deaths because alcohol-related crashes and deaths, some people thought that they would actually go down if marijuana was legalized because people would be more drugged in driving. And so what did you find when you looked at the data? So the data uh, showed that there was no difference in traffic deaths in Colorado or Washington or our control states, which happened to be Texas, Utah, and Virginia. So, so you looked at trauma fatalities. Did, did you have any data just looking at total number of crashes? Yeah. Any difference? So crashes was interesting. Crashes actually went up in the state of Colorado. It was a statistically significant number. When you look at it, it looks just like a blip on the screen, but... Um, it, it went up. Uh, it also went up in the control states just the same amount. Uh, it also went up in the state of Colorado, Washington, about the same amount, but interestingly went down in the state of Washington, crashes. And so I, I didn't really know how to interpret that. I don't know what to think of it, I mean, which sort of leads us to, well, where are we going to go from here? So what were the main conclusions you drew from this study? Well, the main conclusion is for the year that they legalized marijuana in both of those states, it, it didn't contribute to the public health dilemma of traffic deaths in those states. So at your trauma center, are you guys routinely testing for marijuana among yeah, your trauma victims? Routinely, yeah, sure. We do it about like the states of Washington and Colorado did it, which is to say it's pretty inconsistent. You know, we, we also looked at that, too, uh, to try to get an idea of how uh, – how frequent that is, and it's really in the low, low percentage range of the amount of people that get tested and the amount of people that get tested positive. And, and so we'll finish up discussing a little bit of the uh, post-presentation discussion that went on. There, there was a big response to this paper, a lot of discussion, a lot of interest. Um, it seemed like most of the discussion, half of it centered on the morality of legalizing marijuana. Uh, and then the other half of it centered on technical issues of how do we test for it and, and the still remaining question of how much it actually impacts safety and trauma. So starting with the, the impacting safety and, and uh, that issue, uh, what did you think of the discussion? Well, the discussion was really heated, and most of the impact of safety questions really, to me, centered around uh, this is just one, years of one year of data, and what, what are we going to – we may find something completely different next year, and we might find something completely different a decade from now, to which I completely agree. I mean, but I think it's worth looking at data and seeing what's out there. You know, one of the comments was it would be irresponsible to publish this data, and I thought, I don't think so. You know, the data is data, and I mean, 
these are two states that legalized it. Since that time, Alaska and Washington, D.C. are legalizing it. I mean, it's going to happen throughout the United States. All right. Well, it was a great presentation on a hot-button topic, and we hope to see more from your group and others that look at this as more states begin to decriminalize it. Thanks a lot, Jason. Thanks, Matt. And the second talk this morning was a great presentation out of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester looking at TXA administration uh, and the incidence of hyperfibrinolysis uh, before and after TXA. Hi, my name is Miley Parker. I'm a second-year general surgery resident at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Okay, so great presentation, Miley. Uh, we have a couple questions for you. The, the first one is what was the impetus behind your study or, or why did you decide to do this study? The impetus behind our study is we have a lot of good information on TXA and its safety and potential efficacy in trauma patients. However, we have a significant knowledge gap in that we're unsure of the exact mechanism by which TXA may benefit trauma patients. We know that TXA is an antifibrinolytic, therefore the most obvious answer to why it benefits trauma patients is a hemostatic effect of the antifibrinolytic properties. However, an anti-inflammatory mechanism has also been proposed. So long story short, the reason behind the study is to try to further elucidate the mechanism of benefit from TXA. Yeah, and as you point out in your presentation, the CRASH study had no fibrinolytic data or TEG data used to decide on the administration, so it's certainly something we need to learn a little more about. So what was the criteria in your study for giving TXA, or just the criteria used at your center? So anyone deemed to need blood products in the field or in the emergency department qualifies for TXA. Anyone with a systolic blood pressure less than 90 at any time in the resuscitation. Anyone with a heart rate greater than 120, point of care lactate greater than 5, or INR greater than 1.5 meets our criteria. Okay, and so just uh, tell us briefly about your study design. Our study was a retrospective review of data collected in our trauma registry. We identified um, 3,500 patients total. We identified 55 patients that uh, received TXA. We looked at those patients' demographic data, clinical outcomes, and laboratory data. And then we identified patients who uh, had a thromboelastogram, or TAG, drawn both before and after TXA administration and compared the TAG parameters at the before and after time points. And when was the TXA, or where was the TXA administered in your study? Was it all in the emergency department, or was any of it given in the field? So 33% of our patients actually received TXA in the field. The remainder of the patients received their TXA initial bolus dose in the emergency department or ICU. Okay, and what were the main findings from your study? So the meat of our paper is that we found a clinic or a uh, statistically significant decrease in the lysis at 30 minutes. So the decrease that we found was 3.7% to 0.2% before and after TXA, respectively. And how about the thromboembolic complications in your paper? So our venous thromboembolism rate was 11%, which is a bit higher than we expected. Um, However, our patients were a severely injured group of patients with a mean ISS of 27. The group of patients who had a venous thromboembolism actually had a mean ISS of 38. So what questions do you think are left on the table about giving TXA based on your study findings? We've shown, based on a small number of patients, a decrease in 
fibrinolysis as measured by TAG in trauma patients receiving TXA. Um, however, I would, I would really like to see a larger set of data, ideally data from a randomized control trial show a significant difference in fibrinolysis. Uh, in addition, although our result was statistically significant, I'm unsure whether it's clinically significant. And really the crux of the matter is we're trying to determine which trauma patients are going to benefit from TXA. And then in your presentation, you mentioned the, the STAMP trial. Um, what is that and what are they looking at? So the STAMP trial is the uh, study of tranexamic acid in air medical pre-hospital transport. Kind of a mouthful. They are looking at pre-hospital administration of TXA and its effect on 30-day mortality in the trauma population. In addition, they plan to use laboratory parameters, including TEG, to examine the effect of TXA on um, fibrinolysis as well as the inflammatory response to injury. Okay. Well, great presentation today, and thanks for uh, talking to us. Thank you very much, Dr. Martin. So today we heard an interesting presentation that's looking to change the definition of massive transfusion and make it more useful both clinically uh, and research. The presentation was from the Oregon Health Sciences University, uh, and I'm happy to have the presenter here to talk to us about it. I'm Alexis Moran. I'm a R4 surgery resident from Portland, Oregon, OHSU. So uh, what actually prompted you to do this study? So it was actually Stephanie Savage's paper from 2011 where she looked at redefining massive transfusion um, using CAT or a critical administration threshold. Um, I had read over her paper and read some of the comments in the discussion and pinpointed uh, three main things, which was that this was not a rate-based definition. Um, it was retrospective and there was an arbitrary uh, uh, arbitrary number of three that was then statistically validated. Um, I took that and realized that we had access to the prompt database, which is the massive transfusion prospective uh, study. And in that, we collected our data at 15-minute increments, and I could, I could look at massive transfusion uh, with a rolling rate and actually give a prospective rate-based transfusion. Uh, additionally, I then addressed the second question, which was, instead of defining arbitrarily a number, if I used recursive partitioning, this found a statistical significant uh, without, with minimal bias. So we already have a definition of massive transfusion. It's, it's greater than 10 units in 24 hours, which is the most common one. What's the problem with this? Uh, the problem is that it excludes patients who die prior to 10 prior to receiving 10 units of packed red cells. Um, and then it also includes patients who may be less ill and receiving a slow transfusion over 24 hours. So you mentioned recursive partitioning. Uh, I'm sure many people don't know what that is. Just exactly what is that and how did it help you in this? Uh, sure. So it's a statistical method where you have a variable. For us, it was number of packed red blood cells transfused in an hour. And you run it against another variable, which are our outcome variable was 24-hour mortality. You put in the data that you want, so we found the maximum number of units per hour, run it against 24-hour mortality, and it, the least amount of bias, finds statistically significant points of mortality. And these branch points tell us where the most significance is. So it, arbitra or it, 
It does it with an, essentially a non-arbitrary cutoff point, which is what we are looking for. So, so it does a series of searching for clinical cutoffs that are, that are meaningful, relevant to your outcome? Correct. So what did you find when you uh, used this method on the prompt data? So our first cutoff was at greater than 13 units per hour. We found actually a really significant uh, mortality rate, which was about 74%. And then we found that there was another statistically significant uh, rate in mortality, which was greater than four units, uh, which was about 17% mortality. And that's four units per hour? Yes, greater than four units per hour. And this is the, this is the subset of patients that we felt could have been missed by the prior classic massive transfusion definition. And so how did you uh, find your new definition compared to the, the old 10 units per 24-hour definition? So when we compared them, specifically looking at that greater than four units per hour and less than 13 units per hour, we found that it included 71% but missed 29% of the patients. And those are potentially the patients that could be at risk of needing a massive transfusion. So, so when you're talking about changing the definition, there's going to be patients that you exclude that fell into the old definition, and then there's going to be new patients that you include. So, so who are the patients that your new definition includes that were missed with the old definition? Uh, it would be those who expire prior to receiving 10 units. And then who would be the patients that you, you're excluding with your new definition? that were included in the old 10 unit per 24 hour definition? It would be those who are less ill who you slowly trickle blood products in. Okay, so the, the one unit, two units, every couple hours here and there, that okay. adds up to 10 over 24, but they're not very sick. But they would no longer be included in the massive transfusion definition, okay. correct. Well, that's great, and it's interesting work. What, what are you guys planning to do with this next? Um, hopefully, we'll be able to uh, verify this in one more study. We have a, uh, the proper trial is out and it actually looks at massive transfusion um, ratios and hopefully we can see how it applied in that trial and see if it still holds up and if so we'd like to see if we could apply it clinically and do a prospective study. Well we're looking forward to more work like this and, and I definitely think we need to improve our definitions of massive transfusion and this seems like probably one of the more promising techniques. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. This afternoon, we heard a great presentation on reconstruction of an abdominal wall defect after a firework injury, which produced a large blast-type injury to the abdominal wall. Uh, I'm here with the presenter. Hi, my name is Shad Farone. I'm a trauma surgeon at Peace Health Southwest Medical Center in Vancouver, Washington. All right, great. Thanks for joining us, Shad. So can you just tell us the basics of the case? What happened to this guy, and how did he present? Well, you know, this, is, this was an interesting case. Uh, He's a 37-year-old man that was playing with commercial-grade fireworks and had a traumatic injury to his abdominal wall. And although we see these injuries uh, in the military setting from IED explosions, it's fairly uncommon to see something like this in a civilian setting. So uh, was there any injury to any other structure, or was it just his abdominal wall? No, he, he lost... Uh, Essentially, the left portion of his abdominal wall, he had two small bowel injuries and two colon injuries. Okay, so what was done at the initial surgery? The initial surgery, he had two small bowel resections, and uh, he essentially had a damage control laparotomy on this initial surgery. And then he came back multiple times and ultimately had two colonic anastomoses. And then we had to rebuild his abdominal wall, and although there are several options to do this, we chose a particular biologic mesh called A-cell. 
it was immediately available to us, and we used it, and we had a pretty nice outcome from it. So, so what is ACEL exactly? It is a urinary bladder matrix. It's a porcine bladder uh, uh, tissue that is uh, cleansed of uh, all inflammatory cells, and, and, and it's an extracellular matrix. So when you insert this into an individual, like other biologics, the extracellular matrix prov pr provides a scaffold to rebuild. And, and, and this particular product has, what well, we've seen, nice integration. So what were the aspects of this case that you think made it interesting enough to do a case report? I mean, civilian surgency, small bowel injuries, colon injuries, you know, some injuries to the abdominal wall. Uh, what was it about this case that you think really has some learning points? I think what made this the most interesting is as fireworks are so common and are used in every state for every occasion. And if you Google firework-related injuries, you'll see lots of different injuries on the Internet. But surprisingly, from 1965 until now, no one's written about an evisceration from a, from a firework-related injury. So I think that's what made it interesting. Is, and if you get presented with this, what do you do to fix it? And, that, and that was, it was a complex repair, and we didn't have a ton of options, and we, we picked something that seemed to work. So uh, can you just describe what type of repair you did of this abdominal wall? Did you do a, a component separation, an underlay, an overlay? On about hospital day seven, after we were sure that everything was clean, we placed a large piece of mesh using a, a laparoscopic endoclosed device. We sewed it in circumferentially and placed a dressing over that to keep it moist because moisture helps with the healing. And we placed the wound back. And then we would look at it every seven to ten days and make sure that it wasn't drying out and make sure that it was integrating. And ultimately, he got a skin graft and, and went home. And so far, one year, does not have a hernia. That's great. And so you've seen him back uh, over one year, and does he have abdominal wall laxity or any functional problems? He has no functional problems. We ultrasounded him in clinic uh, a few months ago, and you can clearly see the skin edge, and you can clearly see his bowel and peristalsis. And there's a 56 millimeter layer between the skin and the bowel, which I think and I hope is fascia. I don't know for sure because we've never biopsied it, but he clearly has a layer of something between his bowel and the skin. So with an injury like this and his injury complex, uh, do you think he should ever do this as a one-stage operation and fix all the abdominal injuries and try and close the abdominal wall? Or is this really a multi-stage process? I think it's multi-stage. I mean, there's been some things written recently about biologics and, and how uh, people have challenged using biologics in a, uh, a contaminated setting that was not their intention. Uh, we, we, we feel that we did him the best repair by staging it. Um, you know, some patients, some, some surgeons may have repaired this with a permanent mesh, but Given the amount of contamination, we thought that was not uh, was not the best option. Well, it was a great case, and, and you guys clearly did a great job on this guy. And thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. And next up was the famous Western Trauma Association expert panel session, otherwise known as the tequila session. The moderator was Steve Shackford, and our three panelists were Dr. Peter Ree, Riyad Carmi Jones, and Dr. Marty Shriver. The session starts off with Dr. Shackford laying down the house rules. <laughs> I want to lay down some house rules for you, though, before we start. 
Number one, the moderator will ask you questions about the case. Number two, this is surgery, not medicine. I want crisp, concise answers. <laughs> Number three, this is trauma. We are maximally invasive surgeons, so commit yourself, no reneging. House rules two, the audience and moderator will uh, judge the quality of your answers. We're going to use EA Cognitive's classification of errors. Every error is an opportunity for improvement, and your QI program will be overseen by Dr. Jose Cuervo. <laughs> So I took care of all these patients you're about to see. This is a 20-year-old male, high-speed motorcycle crash, head-on. He's combated during transport. Initial exam, he's an he's Ashton, he's combated, he's following commands, his pulse 120, blood pressure 60, over the palp, his GCS is 15. Uh, he has a complex uh, scalp laceration, which is really an evulsion over his right brow, his lungs are clear, his chest wall has no crepitus, his abdomen is distended and firm. His pelvis and back are stable with no step-offs. No crack of this, no, uh, no pain to rock. Due to time constraints of this podcast, we can't play the entire session. But although the cases are varied, there's always one common denominator for the expert panel session. When you're wrong, when the audience doesn't like what you said, or when the moderator doesn't like what you said, your penalty comes in the form of a shot class, as Marty Schreiber finds out here discussing a potential bladder injury. I would have done a cystogram as well with the CT scan. Yeah, gross hematuria, I would have done a cystogram to rule out a, a bladder injury. So when you look at the bladder, I'm yeah, not you look at the, it's not You look at the intraperitoneal bladder, you also need to evaluate the extraperitoneal bladder. So, drink, you're waiting for fun. Drink. Right. Do it at the same time. So here's, here's the thing. So here's, I, I gotta focus you guys. I mean, so what do they do? Do they stent it or not? No, no, no. no. Well, I, want to, I want to see what KJ wants to do. So, so remember when we debated, we had the pro con a yeah. few years ago. You took the T-bar. Yeah, I know. Took the open approach. Yeah, I know. I know. I also showed that famous picture. Of the underwear? No, the you know in our day we had to walk uphill ten ten miles through <laughs> snow to get laid and smoke crack. But the uh... <laughs> due to the time constraints of the podcast, we obviously can't play you the whole session. But rest assured, the opponents shook hands at the end and stumbled off to fight another day. All right, I'm here with the lead investigator from a Western Trauma Association multi-center trial that studied the found down patient. Uh, this is Mitch Cohen. He's a trauma surgeon from UCSF, San Francisco. And thanks for joining us, Mitch. Oh, thanks for having me. So, so can you tell us about the, the reason for doing this study? Uh, what, what do we need to know about the found down patient? Well, several years ago in San Francisco, we were noticing that we had a large number of patients that were actually termed found down. These are patients that were found with no knowledge of why they were down, no necessary uh, obvious injury, obvious medical diagnoses. They were brought in and they were entered into the triage log as found down, and then our emergency department would scramble and try to figure out were they a trauma patient, were they a medical activation, were they just drunk, was there nothing wrong with them? Uh, and we did a single center study of a little over 200 patients to try to figure out who uh, these patients were. Um, we found that there was a large amount of triage discordance, meaning that the trauma team was activated and it turned out they had medical diagnoses or the medical team was diagnosed, uh, was activated, uh, and they ultimately had injuries that required trauma involvement. Okay, so how did you do your study? 
Well, so we published this initial paper. There was a large amount of interest. Uh, Steve Shackford in San Diego uh, was fond of saying that his center was a found-down center of excellence, which we <laughs> found funny. Um, and the Western Trauma Multicenter Trials uh, Group is just a phenomenal group of uh, like-minded investigators, and so we um, proposed it at one of the meetings. There was a large amount of interest. Uh, we found centers that had the same problem. Uh, and uh, we started to rec recruit patients. We had seven centers, a little over uh, 650 patients. Um, of interest was that there were a large number of centers that wanted to participate that couldn't because everyone does it a little bit differently. Some centers put everyone uh, as a trauma activation and put every one of these patients in their trauma registry. Some centers put everyone in medicine unless they have uh, signs of trauma, and we found that very interesting because that's the ac actual resource question that we have. Sure, you know? sure. So yeah. what were the main results you found? Well, so the main results were uh, that we had a large amount of triage discordance. Uh, depending on how you defined it, it was somewhere between 11 and 13 percent, uh, meaning that either you needed cross-consultation, you know, a trauma patient that needed medicine or a medicine patient that needed surgery or trauma, uh, or they were just mistriaged, right? The trauma team was lit up and it turned up turned out that they were having a metal di medical diagnosis. Um, we have a large amount of uh, results that I uh, encourage everyone to read in the paper in terms of who these patients are. Large amount of homelessness, large amount of substance abuse, mm -hmm. um, and a large number of predictors of who would be the patients that really should be trauma patients and who would be the patients that should be medical patients. So, so in addition to the resource sparing issue, and the triage and the headaches that come with that. Did you identify anything that would raise concern about patient care issues, uh, delay of care or, or missing major injuries? There was, uh, in the patients that were mistriaged, there was a 14%, a uh, little over 14% uh, identification of late injuries, which I think we'd all agree that, you know, if we had 14% late injury diagnosis in our trauma population, looking at our trauma registry, that would be fairly uh, horrifying. So what are your recommendations based on the, the data from this study? Well, I think all things are local. Uh, we have um, one of the main findings was that the triage discordance went up enormously at age 70 and above. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to examine that very closely uh, because we know that as our population ages, they have a large number of medical problems, a propensity to injury. And so, you know, we think that special attention should be paid to uh, our older patients, 70 and above, and perhaps we should have a multidisciplinary approach to them. Um, otherwise, our recommendations are really all things are local. You know, if we put all these patients in our trauma registry, we'd be overwhelmed. So we're going to keep doing it the same way with just a much higher level of consciousness about knowing that oftentimes there's, you know, bidirectional uh, triage issues saying, well, maybe we need to be more thoughtful and work with our emergency department colleagues, try to figure out how to, when these patients hit the door and we don't know what's wrong with them, do a very, very quick assessment and figure out which team uh, to light up rather than putting everyone in one bucket or the other. Sure. Well, congratulations on coordinating a multi-center study. We don't see many of those, and we know how much work it is. And thanks a lot for sharing the data with us. Thanks for having me. To close out this podcast, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Christine Kokenauer the outgoing president of the Western Trauma Association. She gave her presidential address on the topic of end-of-life care and trauma, sharing insights from both her professional experiences as well as personal experience dealing with difficult end-of-life care and decision-making in family members. A copy of her presidential address, as well as most of the scientific presentations, 
algorithms and other talks given at the Western Trauma Association meeting should be published in the December 2015 issue of the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Okay, I'm here with outgoing past president, Dean Kokenauer of the Western Trauma Association, has been our fearless leader for the past year. Um, so, uh, Christine, thanks for joining us. When did you first join the Western Trauma Association, and, and what made you decide to join the group? I think it was in 1991. It was the meeting in Jackson Hole, and I had gotten a paper on, then put my application, because I loved the organization, even then. Just, it was an immediate, this is for me. And you got to see, I was in awe as I walked around the meeting, and the people that were there that were, these were names in trauma surgery and surgery. But the other thing was, you got to see them as real people. They weren't in suits. It's a hallmark of this organization. In fact, you can lose a tie if somebody happens to see you wearing one at the meeting. So how have you seen the organization grow and change over the time since you started here as a presenter and now have become president? It was a smaller organization when I first started. I, too, had to wait um, to get in. I think it's probably five years. Other thing with the organization that I've seen change is they opted to stay as trauma only because we have a multidisciplinary focus. We have emergency medicine docs in our ranks. We have orthopedists, um, so there are a few of the very few of those. Um, pediatric surgeons. We even have a PM&R specialist. Um, we have a multidisciplinary um, approach to trauma. And we decided rather than trying to be emergency general surgery in addition, we decided, no, we're going to stay just with trauma. Okay, and so as you leave the presidency, um, can you just tell us what, what was the best aspect of being president and what do you think was one of your biggest challenges as being president of the organization? Uh, the biggest challenge of the presidency is trying to get your board meeting done in a timely fashion. That's almost <laughs> impossible. Um, but I think one of the biggest challenges is we have a very, the opposite of what many organizations have. We have a waiting list to become a member. Um, we have increasing number of guest registrations every year. And I think probably our biggest challenge that I'm starting to see, do we limit the number of people that come to me? Mm. And do we limit the number of guests? And how do we do that? How do we do it equitably? And then I think the big thing that is starting to be on everyone's mind, at least the oldsters in the organization, is the 50th anniversary of the WTA will be in 2020. Mm. And what can we do that's special for that sure. meeting? And to remind us of our history, to remind us of the legacy that we've created with the Western Trauma Association. Okay, well, and to end on a high note, what was the best part of being president of the organization? Throwing a party for all your friends for a week, and also being able to have some incredible talks by some incredible people. Julie Freshlight, I came to see him in lecture 
Chuck Cox, one of my former ICU fellows, actually, who gave a wonderful, fabulous lecture. And finally getting the, um, and probably one of the best parts was finally getting my talk done on Sunday before the talk had to be done on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we look forward to many more great meetings from the Western Trauma Association, and thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east.